Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. In the spring of 2015, Hanya Yanagihara published her second novel, A Little Life. It was a heavy book in every sense of the word, a lush and shattering tale of trauma, more than 700 pages long. No one expected it to sell more than a couple thousand copies. Instead, A Little Life exploded onto the literary scene, becoming one of the year's most celebrated books. It was everywhere. And you couldn't ride the New York subway without seeing the novel's arresting trademark cover photo. What you wouldn't see anywhere in or on the book was a photo of the author. Nor could you find Hanya on Facebook or Twitter. Readers were dying to know the woman behind the astonishing story. But Hanya wasn't interested in celebrity. At the height of her book's surprise success, Hanya did something even more shocking. She went back to her day job. Hanya has been working in magazines for 16 years, writing fiction during her off hours. And after a little life, people expected her to do what hotshot bestselling authors do, build on her fame, turn the book into a movie, then write another bestseller, ASAP. Instead, Hanya returned to the magazine world, albeit with a pretty big promotion. In 2017, Hanya became editor-in-chief of T, the New York Times-style magazine. Literary elites raised eyebrows wondering why she chose a fashion publication. Hanya scoffs at such snobbery. Art and culture are of crucial importance, she argues, especially at this point in history. In her first year, Hanya led a massive overhaul of the magazine, banning writers who turned in fluff and insisting on in-depth reporting from her staff. Whether it's a detailed retrospective on the AIDS crisis or a perfectly simple trend piece on printed scarves, Hanya summons a life force, not simply a story, She believes in the rigors of classical journalism, but she's also a friend to the digital age. Hanya lives in Manhattan, but she's a native explorer, with no plans to lay down roots. Marriage and children aren't for her, and she values friendship above all relationships. She's never followed traditional paths, professional or personal. Instead, this editor and author is building a life exactly to her liking, a very big life that is truly her own. Good morning, Hanya. Good morning, Christine. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled today. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. I'd love to start out just talking a little bit about your background. You had a pretty unconventional childhood. I was born in L.A. I'm a fourth-generation American, Mm -hmm. and my family's from Hawaii. And it was unconventional only insofar as we moved a lot, and we kept doubling back to the same places. And Part of it was because my father was in training for a long time. He was a research physician, and he went where there was tenure eventually. He was easily distracted and easily dissatisfied, and he would pick up and leave um, whenever he got a 
got a, got a sense of wanderlust. And so when I moved here to New York in 1995, I thought I've got to stay in one place for longer than we did when I was growing up. So by 2000, that was the longest I'd ever lived in one place consecutively, five years. And I thought, well, now I've done it. Now I've made it. Um, because did you want to leave after that? No, but I wanted to prove to myself that I could stay put when the going got tough or boring or complicated or, or just lost its charm. Um, do you have a restless heart? Do you feel restless when you're kind of in because of that sort of the, all the moving around when you were little? No, but it taught me really interesting and useful skills. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it taught me that I can always make friends wherever I go, that I can always adapt wherever I go, you know, that nothing lasts forever. And that as bad as something is, it'll end. And also as good as something is, it will eventually end. But it did give me a sense, I think, of a, of a certain kind of resourcefulness that has put me in good stead, especially as I didn't move cities, but I move jobs a lot. And I know that whenever I land somewhere new, it might take me a little longer um, and it might be a slightly bloodier process, but I can make it work wherever I, I land. And that's that's a very useful thing to know early on. Has the editor-in-chief role at T Magazine, which you took about um, in 2017, it's a little more than right, a year Right, a little ago. more than a year. So I took it in May. My first day in the office was May 9th, 2017. But moving into that position, did it make you feel a little bit more permanent? It, it's, a, it's a funny thing to get the top job in an era when magazines are going through such convulsions and when the industry as we know it is not going to look the same in five years. I mean, the kind of curious thing for a lot of us who are career magazine editors in our 40s and 50s is that you never assume that the industry you began in will vanish or will transform so profoundly that you won't recognize it. And yet that is what's happening for many of us sort of mid and late career editors, that in five years, magazines will exist, but they won't look like they do now. And I think we can even see that, you know, in the past five years. So it didn't make it feel more permanent or more real, but it made me feel very lucky to be in magazines at the job I really wanted, at the job I'd spent, you know, 25 years clawing my way up the master to try to get at the end of what will be recognizably this era. It's a bittersweet position to be in in many ways because you do realize that it's going to profoundly shift. And to what, I don't know. But I'm glad to be here in the last gasp of its recognizable form. I actually don't think that print media will, will vanish. I think that actually it's an opportunity for magazines just like yours. I think that T is a, is a shining example of this is really taking advantage of this opportunity when people are maybe buying magazines less, mm -hmm. but the ones that they are buying, they're really investing in. I agree with you. I don't think print is going to disappear, but I do think the way the business is run and the amount of waste that is still pretty prevalent in the industry is going to have to end. If you look at other countries and, and the way their magazines are run, it's a much smaller staff, you get paid a lot less, and the sticker price of the magazine is is much higher. I think the other thing that distinguishes, and I'm thinking about magazines in, in Europe and, and East Asia mostly, distinguishes those magazines is that they are more specific. You know, there isn't this sense that you have, you know, the same six celebrities on the cover month in and month out, that their strength is that they're more idiosyncratic. I think they're a little more esoteric, which T certainly is. 
And they're narrower, but deeper in their interests, I think. And I do think that that is a kind of slow shift in magazines we're seeing. I mean, the problem with the American magazine publishing system is that it's still largely dependent upon newsstand. And a lot of the covers I've been able to do at T, I would not be able to do if I had to respond to a newsstand audience. So I'm very, very lucky that way. And because we don't have to depend on newsstand, because it gets delivered, I mean, one hopes, within the, the New York Times, I feel if you're not taking advantage of that opportunity to do something strange or something unexpected or something, quote unquote, unsellable on the cover, then you're not really taking advantage of what the what this particular magazine has to offer. I agree with that completely. And I also think that there's been such a such a focus on scale, so yes. much scale in yeah. America. Yes, that's and true. I think that that's why, unfortunately, we, we end up seeing the same faces on, on yeah, magazine covers because there's so much pressure to actually fulfill these really exorbitant numbers. And I do think that we've lost sight of, or at least in some in some ways, and, and some companies have lost sight of, you know, the real purpose that magazines have served in the beginning. And it's interesting. Going back to what you were saying, I think the other thing that you see with a lot of magazines is that you're editing for an editor. So if you're an editor-in-chief of a magazine, you're editing for whoever the editorial director or creative director of your company is. Whenever you're editing for another editor, there's a kind of second guessing that goes into what you include, you know, what your headlines are, what your art choices are. And one of the many reasons I'm very lucky to be at T is we don't have to show our pages to anyone. So we don't have to have an approval process. You know, I mean, Dean Baquet, who's the executive editor of The Times and a really great guy who I admire a great deal. But, you know, he doesn't have time to look at, at the pages of T or the New York Times magazine. He has other things to do, you know, mainly talking to the Washington Bureau. So when we are done with those pages, they go to the printer. And there isn't that, that sort of second, arguably unnecessary step where you're having it approved by somebody else and then sending it to the printer, which I think accounts for some of the sameness that we've seen creep into a lot of books, especially those published by it's safe. You know, by the big companies. Yeah. It's safe. I yeah. think that I think that you're right. I think that when people create doubt in you, you know, that never really existed before. It's very yeah. unnerving. How often when you're sending it off to to print are you a little bit scared? Rarely. I mean, because there are certain things we I'm can't. so impressed. Well, there's... I, I, I have... used to be scared all <laughs> the time. Well, I have a very outspoken photo and video director, creative director, and managing editor who aren't shy about saying, this looks wrong. I think this is in slightly bad taste. This is... You know, so they're, they'll always say when they think something is a little bit off, either politically or for sens sensitivity reasons or, or just it doesn't look right. Sometimes I just let it go and sometimes I'll change it. But I do feel that I have stop gaps, that I have second and third and fourth eyes on, on everything I do and I do trust what, what they say. And then there are certain safety measures that we have built into working at the Times. I mean, we don't have, it's true, a creative director for the company, but we do have an ethics and standards department. And there are certain things we can't do that probably save us from a little bit of bad taste because we're just not able to do it. You can't swear in the book. You can't show nudity, except if it's in, a, if it's in an artwork. You can't use certain kinds of language. But beyond that, you can you can do quite a bit. But it saves you from the really um, noticeable, vulgar things. I think you mentioned earlier that this was somewhat of a dream job. What's mm. it? What is it like to have your dream job? 
Well, I mean, I guess there's two schools of thought about having the dream job. I mean, the first is that if you are getting your dream job and it was still your dream job, then you haven't been that imaginative because you should have really thought of something else. That's good advice. Yeah, it is good advice, right? I always wanted to be the editor-in-chief. I knew I could do it. I knew I wouldn't get the chance at Condé. And, you know, I was at Condé for many years, as, as were you. At Traveler, right? At Traveler. And Why didn't you think you'd ever get it? When I was there, you know, it was, I think things have changed. But when I was there, I didn't look like a Condé editor. I just didn't, I didn't think it would ever happen for me. And at the times, they don't care about that. And this was the book I wanted. You know, I went from really wanting to be the editor-in-chief to wanting to be the editor-in-chief of a book I wanted to be the editor-in-chief of. I think just sort of blindly thinking, well, I want this title and I'm going to do anything to get this title without really thinking about the context of where that title might exist. That's something you do grow out of or you better grow out of. But really being able to, after years of experience um, and many years of jobs, really identify what it is that you want out of a job and what you want out of being boss and then going for that because you can make the distinction between being boss and being boss of the, a specific thing, that's the useful That's the useful part of it. But stepping into that role, and you were very close with Deborah Needleman, who mm. was the former editor-in-chief and also a really, really brilliant editor. What did you want your legacy to be? Like, I think that when, even though it's it's my own company, but, you know, I didn't start out with the editor-in-chief title. It was something yeah. that I really sort of, like, grew into mm. and had to really feel confident, especially because digital media was such a new medium. Yes, yes. I remember thinking, like, what do I want my stamp to be through this role? Like, what do I want to say? And what did you want to say? I really felt there was an absence of of a authentic conversation happening between yeah. women. Yeah. And I was already feeling really alienated by women's magazines. It's one of the reasons why I, I read a lot of men's magazines. Yes. Esquire and GQ and Rolling Stone. And I think because I didn't really identify with how women's magazines spoke to me. And I also didn't think that a lot of it was accurate. Mm. You know, I felt a little strange that, you know, the do's and don'ts and glamour, I was really always like into the, do into right, the don'ts, right. you know, and I think that I think a lot of people are and I think right. a lot of people see themselves in that. So I think to tell you that it's wrong right. is really kind of a toxic message and right. behavior. But with you, I mean, I think that there's a long legacy that, you know, sort of preceded you at T and also just the, um, the legacy of the New York Times, I mean, is so right. remarkable and important, especially now given the Trump administration. But what did you want your trademark or your, or your sort of impact to be, you know, stepping into that role? Right. Well, I mean, first I have to say, you're right. All consumer magazines make up a set of rules. And for many, many years, it was about telling people, I mean, you know, I'm not the first this, to say this, obviously, but, you know, women's magazines, as we knew them, let's say, before the mid-2000s, were all about telling you what you were doing wrong. And so were men's magazines. And they, you know, and so were certain other magazines. But it's really about making a template for life that the editors may or may not believe themselves, and then trying to get you, the reader, to feel bad about not following them and inspired to follow other rules. And one of the things that sites like Refinery did was they moved the authority from the editors to the readers because the readers asked for what they wanted and the editors then fulfilled it, which was an inverse of the way a traditional women's book had worked, that the editors would tell you, the reader, what you were doing wrong with your life, and then you, the reader, would have to try to meet this imaginary standard that was set by people in New York. And so that's been a huge shift in the way that we experience 
not only women's magazines, but any sort of instructive consumer magazine. With tea, you know, the brief has always been different. It's a luxury magazine. It's meant to make the Times money. I mean, that's first. That's why it was invented. And that's when Stefano uh, Tonki began this book about 15 years ago. I who's think Who's now the editor-in-chief of W. Who's now the editor-in-chief of W about 12 years ago. I love tea. I mean, I just thought that he created, and every editor since, has created such a specific world. And the things I love about, and there's not been that many editors. There's been, I'm the fourth. I think I have, we have a certain responsibility, all of us past editors, and I include myself in this, to make an expensive looking environment because it is about, you know, the definition of what luxury is. It has has morphed and changed and shifted and become the subject of, I'm sure, various business of fashion and TED Talk um, speeches. But ultimately, you want a beautiful looking book, whatever that is. When readers look at it, I want I want them to feel that I've been excited about discovering everything in the book, that everything in it came from a single hive mind, by which I mean not everything I put in the book is something I personally love, but it's within the aesthetic and the philosophy and the culture of a certain kind of mind. And you might not be able to articulate it better than that, and I can't really either. But you should understand that everything in it, the people in it, the spaces in it, the food in it, the photographs in it, come from a specific aesthetic, a specific group aesthetic, I, I suppose I should say. When I want people to look at it, I want them to say, wow, she really did not give any fucks about about what she put in this book, <laughs> that it was things that, that it was people she admired, it was spaces she longed to see, it was, it was ideas that she thought were important for us to hear and to read about. The greatest compliment I think I could receive about this book is if someone who's visually minded tore something out of it and put it on their mood board. Or if if a, if a designer or an artist... You should come artist... to my apartment. You'll see it all over the place, <laughs> all over well, my office. I'm very flattered by that. Or a designer or an architect or, or um, an artist read something in it and, and inspired more of their work. I mean, that is the ultimate compliment. And I think that at its best, the magazine is a conversation between many different artists in many different mediums. And that's what I want it to feel like. And you also are very open about the fact that, and you write about it in your in your most recent letter from the editor, you kind of open up talking about the fact that you don't know everything. And I don't know that I've ever, ever read an editor's letter that, that sort of opened up admitting that there's a lot of material in this magazine that, you know, you were learning about as you were, you know, as you were building it. And I think the fact that you give so much trust and agency to your team, I think is just extraordinary. Well, thank you. And that's scary that you haven't read that before in an editor's letter. Because I mean, have you? I haven't. Well, I think there's two very broadly speaking types of editors in chief, and I've worked for both of them. The first group gets very threatened by or dismissive of people who know things they don't know. The second group gets really excited about it. And I hope I'm in that second group. I mean, I love it when the editors tell me something about an artist I don't know about or about a designer or a house or so on. I, I depend upon them to find things that I don't know. And, you know, there's a great deal I don't know. And they all have very deep specialties. You know, one is very good at decorative arts. One is we have really the best arts editor in town and Michael Miller. One of them is, is very good at plays and Broadway and the other one's very good at dance So I and food. And I really, really do 
depend upon them. That is what an editor at a magazine should be doing. They should be good generalists, by which I mean they should be able to really kind of edit anything that comes across their desk. But they should also have a real passion about and an opinion about their specialty. And so in that way, I think one of the ways that the magazines changed. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details a little bit is that it does follow a much more traditional newspaper structure in in that way, by which I mean there are real beats that the editors have. And when I was there in 2015 and into 16, there was that too. People sort of gravitated towards one area or subject of interest or another. What was your beat? I came from a travel magazine, so I really tried to concentrate on travel in, in the various iterations of what that meant, which is not really even a beat. But anyway, but from a more consumer perspective. Yes, it is. Well, it is and it isn't. But it's much more thrilling to me when it's people who really, I mean, we have an, an editor, Alexa Brazilian, who has this really uncanny way of ferreting out the latest craftsmen, the movements of decorative art. We do a lot more floral coverage, you've noticed, and it's because of her. She drives that. And so the magazine as it is, is often because someone on staff really has a particular passion or eye for something and pushes it. And, you know, the rest of us just stand back and let them push. But that's what a good magazine should be. You should be able to say, you know, Go talk to our decorative arts person, and isn't it great if you have one? And I'm very lucky because much like the Washington Bureau can say, I think, go talk to our NSA expert, I can say, go talk to our land art expert, and one actually exists. The Unstyled Podcast is made possible by Refinery29 and Aerie your body-positive go-to for intimates and loungewear. You know exactly what you'd want to wear while binge-listening to your favorite podcast. Never retouched and always real, Aerie gives you the everyday pieces that make you feel confident, strong, and always the real you in your own style. You are an award-winning author as well. You've published two novels. The fact that your first book, I think, took you more than 15 years to yes. write, correct? Yeah, it took 18 years. 18 and years to yes. write. And, and the second one took 18 months, and that's just... Why do you think that was? You know, with the first book, I just didn't know how to do it. And it's... It, so you gave yourself the space. It wasn't just that. It was mostly kind of just fumbling through the dark. And it does get easier once you know you can do it and once you figure it out. It's like building something with your hands. There's so much construction work that goes into it that you don't know where to start. And if you weren't trained in an MFA program or a writing program, as I wasn't, you're really trying to figure things out alone. And that was one of the reasons. The second reason was I just wasn't that disciplined. I mean, this is the main reason. I wasn't that disciplined. Years went by when I didn't touch it. And I would have these 
visions, these fantasies that I would wake up and elves would have appeared in the middle of the night and finished <laughs> it for me and, and magically sort of... Somehow, and it would be good. And it would be good. It would be better than I could do. And they I would know. have suctioned everything from my subconscious and somehow magically put it on the page. That never happened, obviously. And, you know, but the third reason was the character in the book, the protagonist in the book is an older man. And when I look back at early drafts now, I spent a lot of time trying to guess at what an old man sounded like. And it wasn't good. I mean, it was very florid language and it was sort of verging on the Baroque. And it was the ideas I had about what it meant to be old. When you're 20, you just don't know. Even if you can imagine it, you can't really project it in a sense. And so it was better that I waited. And it was better that I waited as well. And I always tell young writers this. If you publish your book when you're older, and I was 38 when my first book came out, you already know who you are. This idea of defining yourself as an author, as a writer, if you can't say who else you are by that point, if you don't have some other identity, if you don't have something in life that gives you satisfaction, you're sunk. I mean, then publishing a book is not going to help you. It's not going to make you feel any better you better know who you are by that point. And for all, I think, artists who, this, I also say this to make myself feel better because I was middle-aged, but for all 38 artists... 38 is not middle-aged. It is technically middle-aged, but for all artists who find their first success, however you want to define that, very young, it's a mixed blessing. And it's sometimes better to have gone through the humility of waiting. I think it's interesting that you already had a successful career as a magazine editor and magazine writer, and that you felt the confidence to actually pursue these books. And these are not light books. Both books actually carry pretty heavy emotional mm -hmm. material and themes. There's sexual abuse, there's recovery, there's pedophilia, there's disease. You know, but let's talk about A Little Life. How has that book changed your life? And tell me why you wanted to write it. I don't know why I wanted to write it. I just knew I wanted to. And that's such an unsatisfying answer. But I just knew I had these characters in me. And, um, and it's about four it's friends. It's about four male, male friends, friends in New York who aged from, this is my standard pitch for it, but who aged from 25 through their mid-50s. And I had probably had, before the actual writing began, in my head for maybe five years, and I think for many artists of all stripes, it takes really realizing that the stuff that floats around in your subconscious all the time that follows you from work to home may actually be part of something greater. And the moment you put those pieces together is the moment you begin the work, whether it's a painting or a composition or, or, or a novel in this case. How has it changed my life? Um, the most significant and meaningful way for me is that it has allowed me to meet people I never would have met. And that sounds, it sounds a little pat, but it really has. I mean, there is, you know, by the time you're in your 40s, and you've been in a specific career, your entire adult life, the number of people you're going to meet and the kinds of people you're going to meet are pretty much set. You've probably met them, you know, you've met your friends, you've met your friends of friends, you know, you've met your colleagues, you've met your, you know, we met really late. <laughs> yes, but because we were introduced, you know, yes. and the reason we were introduced is because, you know, we had someone who went out of his way to do it. But those are sort of happy kind of one-offs. You don't get exposed to a completely different group of people that often unless mm. you move cities or you switch careers or you move countries. It takes a big life event. And the thing that this book has done for me is it is a bundling together of moving to a different country and moving to a different career. It has 
allowed me to meet people I never would have had contact with and I never would have been able to meet as a magazine editor in New York who've been living here for, you know, X number of years. And that's been a great gift. And some of them have become friends. And that has really been the most surprising and unexpected part of this publication. And, you know, the book wasn't expected to to do well. So how does that discussion come up? Well, you know, I mean, does your agent just ha- just sit you down and say, so listen, <laughs> well, don't get your hopes up. Well, yes. I mean, she didn't even need to okay. say it because my first book didn't do well. And so it wasn't even a foregone conclusion that my editor of my first book would buy this book. And so, I, you know, I didn't even know if it would be published. So, you know, and then when it was when it finally made its way towards publication, it was a very small print run, a very small first edition. We asked 20 people for blurbs. They all said no. What a story. Well, you know, so it wasn't it didn't have high hopes. And so it built very organically and over a long period of time. And that was the other kind of, you know, midlife surprise of this book, that to have something that was discovered reader by reader and that didn't have a a machine behind it has been gratifying. And I mean, more than gratifying. I mean, it's it's the honor and the humility of it is something that I remember daily. You know, I used to work in book publishing. It happens for so few writers and for so few writers who deserve it so much because they're such beautiful, wonderful writers and you want it for them, but it just doesn't, so much of life is is, is luck and, you and know, timing. If, if, and timing, but mostly luck. And if you don't believe it, then you haven't been an author or an artist of any kind. It's It's really about luck. But why do you think the story struck a chord now? Because I think that the fact that neither of your books really have strong female protagonists, and I think that a lot of the interviews with you orbited around this discussion around like writing about men mm-hmm. um, as a woman. But why do you think the relationship between these four friends, and particularly the you know the difficult abuse pieces? Right. You know, you said earlier that part of good fortune is timing. I, I think there are certain times when a novel without the novelist knowing it, will hit something right at the right moment in the culture. And it just, it occasionally happens. And, you know, the writer thinks is very lucky, but typically it's it's not anything, you know, she's done. It, it just is, is luck. And when this book was published in 2015, there were the beginnings of the first conversations about, I think, what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a woman, what, you know, the first conversation, early conversations in the mainstream about being trans were coming up, which, you know, led to greater conversations about gender, the conversations about about sexual abuse, particularly of men, were more foregrounded than they had been before. This idea of how people live these days, you know, if you didn't have a conventional family, if you didn't have a conventional marriage, if you were single, this idea of making a, a family made of friends, these were all things that had existed, of course, before, but you saw them more and more in, in the culture, just sort of bubbling up, frothing up. And I think part of the reason, of course, if I knew, then, you know, if publishers knew, then then everything would, would do well, but they don't know, is that it it just sort of hit at that particular moment, just at the cusp of the conversations we're having now. And so I think that was that was part of it. You know, the other thing is, I think it was a very long, immersive, old-fashioned Dickensian book 
in an age of autofiction or metafiction in which the narrator of the book is some sort of stand-in for the novelist, him or herself, like Nausgaard and, and to a certain extent, Foyer and, and there, there are many, many others. And this was the antithesis of those books. And so it felt sort of like a sore thumb, I think, in a way. And yet for people, I think, who wanted something more traditional and more old-fashioned. You know, the book is completely unironic. It's completely self-serious. It's completely sincere. And I think it offered a different sort of voice in the culture at large, I think. I mean, these are my theories, but we'll never know, really. I mean, why do you think? <laughs> I'd be interested. I mean, I think that it's the same kind of thing I was talking about in 2005. It's like, I think people were ready for it. I yeah. think that maybe there was a sort of hesitance about writing about such serious material, especially, you know, relating to men, mm. because I don't think we'd ever really seen it before. It was it was easier to write about women being abused. Yeah. And I don't really know what that says about our culture. But yeah. I think that it was maybe refreshing is not the right word. I think that sounds trite, but I think there was something it was challenging material that I think people were ready for and needed, you know, in order to open up discussions that weren't really happening maybe at that time. I've heard from many men um, about this book and some of whom tell me things they've not told people before. And I just think, God, we are really failing as a society if young men, you know, men in their 20s were growing up maybe much less men in their 40s and 50s and 60s and didn't feel that they could say to someone, I've been abused or I've been hurt because they felt it would make them less of a man. I mean, that means that we failed yeah. as, a, as a collective no, society. No, I agree. Yeah. I want to ask a practical question. Tell me. I find it really challenging to write in my journal every day, let alone actually spend meaningful time working on essays or working on my own writing, which is which is a little bit sad, you know, because yeah. we're, we both have such demanding jobs. But yes. how do you discipline yourself? What is your writing practice like? And like, what are your what are your sort of rituals? I mean, I want to know about your snacks. I want to know about your hours. <laughs> I know that you have a very kind of specific way of patterns that you like to follow. But tell me about that. Well, I don't go out at night. I mean, I really don't. I go out once a week with a friend and the same friend. The same friend, and we go out every Friday. I love that. And then do you um, go to the same place? We go to usually this one of the three places. And if it's for work, if I have to go, then I'll go. But other than that, I don't go out at night. And everyone knows it. And when I took this job, I you know I, I said to my managing editor, I'm not going to go out at night. I'm just and I said to that to the publisher too. I won't go out. At I've night. never thought of actually like saying that. Yeah, I mean you can really do it, and um, it's and people people say okay. I mean they're a little you'll get a little bit of pushback, but. After, you know, we accommodate ourselves to other people's schedules all the time, and this is this is a pretty understandable one. So when I was writing A Little Life, I wrote every night from 9 p.m. to midnight, Monday through Thursday, and I wasn't Why working. 9 p.m.? Well, you know, I went to the gym at night then, and so I got back. Oh, my and God, you have so dinner. much energy at night. No, I don't really, but I, I, I didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't a good solution. Now I go to the gym in the morning. And, you know, and then I would work on the weekend six hours a day. That's not possible anymore for various reasons, mostly because I'm older and tired. But <laughs> I do really keep the nights open, and that's the only way to do it. For practical advice, you know, a publisher I know gave excellent advice, once, which I think is really helpful. He said you should either write 2,000 words a week or 5,000 words a month. And by the end of the year, even if you even if you hit your lowest goal, so 5,000 words, 
you'll end up with almost a full-length first draft of a, of a typical novel's 80,000 words, 90,000 words. And I thought that was really useful advice, especially for people who are trained as journalists, because we're used to hitting word counts. Gives you structure. Exactly. So it's not about hours. It's not about pages. It's about words. It's And it doesn't mean that you have to write every day, although some people find that useful. It doesn't mean that you have to write for a certain number of hours. It means you have to hit that number, and you have to hit it in any sort of combination. And that, I think, is really – and it takes sort of – the anxiety and the specialness of writing out. It's a numbers game in the end. It's about finishing. And I always say this, and and it sounds so trite, but you will never get published if you don't finish. And I've known wonderful writers, and they're not published because they didn't finish. It, you just said the only thing difference between a good writer and a published writer is finishing. That's really good advice. Right. Finishing is hard. Finishing is hard. But the other good thing about writing is, unlike acting, unlike dancing, you can be as old as you want. I mean, it's 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 one of the only art form, pub, commercial art forms, where there is no age limit, and you can do it at any time. You actually spoke in your. I'm going to read it actually from your letter from the editor okay. because I think it's really poignant, and it has a lot to do with the issue of race and diversity in in the fashion industry right now. I find the shows moving for another reason as well. It's here that the industry announces not just to itself but to everyone watching what it thinks an arresting woman looks like. The runway has far too long been either timid or fickle in expanding that definition and guilty of treating non-white models as either disposable or as trends. But Asian, Black, Middle Eastern, and Latina women aren't gimmicks. And finally, their presence is becoming less a stunt and more a matter of fact. And you put a really, really beautiful Black woman on the cover. Tell yeah, me about gorgeous. Tell me about that choice. And tell me about like what you feel your responsibility is in this. Well, you know, when I came in, I said, I told the fashion team, and they had no problems with this, but it took a while for the casting directors to respond, I think. Whenever there was a question, I wanted a, a model of color. And in this issue, in the, in the fall women's issue, the entire well is women of color. And most of the women in the front of the book stories are women of color as well. And there are many different types of women of color. And so when I saw Adesua, who's our cover model, it was at a, a Prada show. I thought, my God, who is that? I mean, she's just such a beautiful woman. And she has this very long neck and this very erect posture. And I just, I just thought that she was one of the most beautiful things I'd seen in a long time. And, you know, she's she's also an interesting person. You know, her parents are scientists. She's she's older. She's 30. Um, she was in university when she was discovered. She just is um, the kind of face that I would like to look at and learn more about. And so it's something that the reason I didn't want to call out in the editor's letter that the entire well is women of color is because it's not a stunt issue. It's something that I'm committed to doing issue after issue. And it shouldn't be something that we should receive congratulations for. It should just be a, a, a different way of thinking about, a, about what a beautiful woman is. And if it feels like work, then it's not really true for you. Then it's not, then you don't really believe that beauty can be found in many different forms and in many different colors, because it should be as natural as breathing to think that. Amen, Hanya. Thanks, Christine. Hanya, it has been such a pleasure having you on Unstyled. Christine, thank you so much. Thank you so much for making the time. No, it was a privilege. Thank I'll, you so much. And I'll look forward to seeing you at Fashion Week. I'll see you soon. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. I hope you're inspired after hearing Hanya's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. 
And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to the Unstyled Podcast on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with model and body positivity activist Tess Holliday on upending the attitudes and industry of size inclusivity. See you then.